I don't think identities make people want to kill themselves. I think suffering makes people want to kill themselves. And it shocks me that physicians and therapists today are not willing to say, no, if someone has a desire to end themselves, they are suffering and the suffering is a mental health issue and that needs to be addressed. We cannot make it easy for that kid to say, I'm suffering because all I need is this one cookie of hormones and then I won't be suffering anymore. And people are saying, oh, well, good idea. <laughs> and it's just, um, it's dereliction. It's incredible dereliction of, of treating a person like a whole person and forcing children to self-diagnose and then just running with the ball without a question. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, my guest is Laura Wiley Haynes, who some listeners might be familiar with from her epic threads on Twitter on gender and developmental trauma. Laura has been banned from Twitter, and so we're going to get to catch up outside of that medium. Um, but Laura is a CASA, which stands for Court Appointed Special Advocate. She has a special interest in wide reading in developmental trauma, and she's worked with numerous uh, at-risk vulnerable youth, such as youth in the foster care system, uh, for long periods of time, always working in their best interest. So Laura has some unique expertise in the developmental needs of vulnerable children. She's also a writer and a poet, as well as a mother of three children who are grown and thriving. Laura, welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. All right, let's start with the juicy stuff. Why did you get banned from Twitter? I'm hateful. I'm very <laughs> hateful because I think before you enable a little unhappy kid to make permanent changes to their body, it might behoove you to get to know them and um, understand whether they're dealing with any kind of pain that might not be right there on the surface. Yeah, that definitely sounds like hate speech in 2022. <laughs> Anything I've said along those lines has definitely been been deemed hate. Yeah, my actual comment was just saying it's a mental health disorder. And mm. I'd like to know when suicide or um, self-harm or self-hatred are not a mental health disorder. Um, and I think that's what's sort of going on. That's a good point. And it's shocking that you would be banned for saying that since um, what you're talking about, gender dysphoria, is actually literally a mental health disorder in the DSM. That is a true statement of fact. And I hear you expressing concern for vulnerable at-risk youth that the medical system and legal system are enabling the self-harm that vulnerable at-risk youth have always been driven to engage in in some form or another. You have a special insight into that. How long have you been working as a CASA? 
I became accredited as a CASA in 2015, and I am um, my youth is now aged out of um, of eligibility for having a CASA. So I'm not an, a formal CASA, although we are still connected, and I'm still an advisor slash friend. Oh, I think I I think I got something wrong. I I assumed you'd worked with many different youth. Was it only one? No, it's been one youth the whole way. Um, they want you to. The goal when you're a CASA is never to leave the life life of that child. Minimally, you're supposed to stick around until they are either aged out of care, placed in a permanent home, or back with their family. But um, they, like the last day of the training, they kind of slip it in like, oh, yeah, and really you're friends for life. That's really our, our big goal. And, you know, it's not hard to be friends for life with these kids. They're, you know, this... Um, youth that I work with for many years is a wonderful person, delightful person. It's a great experience um, and um, very rewarding and fun. This is this is a deep relationship. Um, it sounds like it's somewhat between the role of a social worker and the role of a foster parent in the kid's life. It's kind of like if you imagine a busybody aunt who really loves you. That's <laughs> pretty much what they're looking for. They want you, they want someone with a parental value system. And let's bookmark that and come back to a parental value system because I have a lot to say about that. But um, they want someone who's going to say, well, well, what about finishing high school? And don't you think you maybe want to go to get your associates or go to college and how is that going to fit in with supporting yourself and you know just asking the pesky adult questions that your mother or your aunt or your grandma or your dad would ask you if they cared about you and you're about to go off half cocked and do something um, impulsive so we're there to kind of help those kids who are very impulsive extremely impulsive um that's impulsivity is a giant trait in this population and we're trying to have them simmer down. You have to teach these kids how to go through a thinking process of making a decision. How, for example, this particular youth was very short and um, and had a plan to join the army. And I happened to just go online and too short. There's a height limit to get to go in the army. You might not you know, know that. Well, neither did I, but I found out in five seconds that the that the permanent plan was an impossible plan. And so that's the kind of thing a CASA has to do is just like go, oh, hmm, you know, I'm not sure this plan is going to work out the way you think it is. Have you looked it up yet? That kind of thing. Um, and so, so you're modeling the process by asking the questions and by slowing them down, you're modeling the process that you yourself would have taught your own children um, in in any kind of complex decision-making, you know? We'll think it over, write a list of pros and cons, talk to some experts. Um, So, for example, when this this youth had some serious developmental trauma and cognitive behavioral therapy wasn't working very well to... Um, address distress, anxiety, depression, pain, et cetera. And so um, 
So I said, well, I'm aware that there are other therapies out there that you could get access to if we get the court to approve it um, that are not talk therapy that don't repeat what you've already learned in cognitive behavioral therapy and might be useful to you. And I, we did some psychoeducation. I talked about neurofeedback. I talked about EMDR and various different kinds of modalities, somatic therapy. And, um, and then it was decided, okay, I'm interested to meet a couple of uh, practitioners. And we went in and met a couple of practitioners. And it so happened that one was just warm, appealing, chill, and it was kind of clear that was going to be the choice. And that was neurofeedback, which was a giant, giant help. And the court enabled us to get out of one system and into the other system. And that was just something I worked on for about a year. Um, and um, I would say that it is a very regulating therapy. Um, this particular neurofeedback is something that just helps the right and left brain work in synchrony with one another rather than the right brain either dropping out into dissociation or going nuts into overdrive, which is typical um, when you've had a lot of dysregulating experiences as a young, as a young child. And you have a lot of interesting insights, which anyone who knows you from Twitter will recall from before you got banned, um, specifically <laughs> on the developing brain. Um, so I'm excited to delve into that. But before we do, you mentioned before we started recording that you took an oath. And the way you were describing it to me, it sounds like you took that oath extremely seriously. So can you tell us about that? Absolutely. Yes. Um, well, before you take the oath, you get the training. And the training emphasizes how you have to be a detective and you have to leave no stone unturned and leave no important party untalked to. And as a CASA, you have access to all the important parties. I, I could call a doctor of a foster youth assigned to me and have my questions answered and I have the right to that through the court. Um, more than a parent, kind of funny, huh? Um, and, um, and so when you, when you're trained, they emphasize how much you have to just go to the next person, ask more questions. Um, you might form a sort of rough draft opinion of a situation, but keep going. You, you there could be other people out there who have key insights and no key things, and you need to talk to everybody. So even just right up at the beginning of being a CASA, that was what they emphasized. And when you take the oath, you take the oath to advocate in the best interest of your child without bias and to do the process of accurate research and fact uh, finding before making a recommendation. And then to make a written recommendation to the court that's in the best interest of your child for their future. And the without bias means that if I'm a pacifistic CASA and my youth wants to be in the military, I need to help them find out how to sign up for the military and what would be the best for them between the Navy or the Army or the Marines. And so you don't let your own personal bias get in the way. If it's a reasonable goal for reasonable humans and that child has that goal, you support it, period. 
So what are the differences between what you do as a CASA and what you might do, say, as a social worker? Well, a social worker has a lot of cases. So the intimacy is less. The time is less. It's a weekly meeting. They're licensed. Um, They have a whole different um, set of rules that govern their behavior. And I guess because the liability of the state is so high, if you've put a child in an unsafe home and no one's checking in on them and something happens to them, that's what they don't want to happen. So a social worker generally meets with a child once a week for, I'm not, I'm not sure, half an hour probably or 40 minutes, something like that. Um, visits the home with some regularity to take a look at the situation. Um, but the CASA only has one child. And we have time to do the deep dive that the social worker doesn't have time to do, uh, to really understand the person that we're helping on a deep level, what their resources are. Do they have a great aunt who's important to them? You know, is the parent who's semi wants to be involved a healthy involvement or not? Well, you have to meet the parent. You have to sit and talk to them. You have to, you know, see how they, how they, kind of pass a couple of tests or not, you know, um, are they consistent? Do they show up, et cetera? So you're doing a lot of, of, um, legwork and this is something a social worker doesn't have time for. You also had mentioned before we started recording that CASAs, well, you just said this now too, are mandated to work in the best interest of the child without bias. And in California, where you live, a social worker who's working with a gender questioning teen or youth is mandated to affirm. So That's your right. role is is really unique in the gender crisis as well because we're facing this crisis where the ideological capture of all of our institutions is really affecting what good caring responsible adults feel they're allowed to say and do. Mm-hmm. Um and you on the other hand have this unique role where on the one hand, there's a lot of intimacy, as you say, and a lot of responsibility, but there's also a lot of freedom to take that oath to heart, act on it, and act in the best interest of the child, even if it flies in the face of everything that is happening in the culture right now. That's right. I like, For example, I had to fight like hell to get neurofeedback for this youth. Uh, there's an entity in our area that is the sort of... Um, provider of all the CBT for the youths in foster care, as well as for abusing parents who may, may be trying to reunify with their children. They, they are the mental health providers for that population. And it's basically trauma-focused CBT for the kids. And there's some DBT group um, um, work that they make available to the parents, some of whom have a lot of trouble self-regulating as well, as you might imagine. Um, So I had to fight to get this youth out of that system because every youth that they're treating is worth some dollars to their bottom line. And they have interns providing Supervised and good interns, in my experience, but interns providing trauma-focused CBT to kids that are extremely traumatized. 
and no right brain therapy um, modalities are offered. So I knew that she'd been through CBT five or six times and was still very distressed. And I felt that we can't make her keep repeating the same process that's not helping. It's going to make her feel like she's unhelpable, and that's not true. Right. So I want to get into some of that brain science stuff and what you understand about our developmental needs. And I haven't asked you yet what you mean by right brain therapy, but I, I want to kind of pose it this way, that we we might want to talk about kind of right versus left brain, but, but also kind of the front of the brain versus the deep recesses of the brain, right? Because when you talk about cognitive behavioral therapy, you're talking about using your capacity for conscious thought and mindfulness um, to help yourself with difficult emotions and unhelpful behaviors, right? Which is- And remind yourself you have some possible options that aren't necessarily freak out, get angry or hide or whatever. Right. Yeah. And that's really great if you're starting from a point of being able to access that insight with help, with professional help, whether that's a therapist or a do-it-yourself CBT workbook, or even they have apps these days to guide the CBT process. You can certainly learn how to use cognitive behavioral therapy techniques with or without a therapist. Um, and, and they're great at what they're good for, um, which, but you have to start from a kind of a baseline level of, of cognizance. Now, a therapist can help a person become more aware through the therapeutic relationship, through what our clients share with us over time. We can help them become more aware of, you know, let's say, what was, what was the trigger for compulsively eating ice cream to self-soothe? Okay, you're aware that you ate a gallon of ice cream. You're not exactly aware what precipitated it. But given that you know it's not healthy to eat a gallon of ice cream, and given that there's a part of you that wants to be healthy, we should probably figure out what's going on with that other part of you, right? What was the emotion, right? And so if, you know, if we can kind of start there, then then there's somewhere to get to. We can help kind of build awareness of what was the emotion I was trying to self-soothe there? What were the thoughts that were going through my head? Was I feeling angry at my spouse? Was I rationalizing my behavior, right? So CBT is is great for that. There's a lot more tools besides what I'm describing right now that are part of CBT. You know, you go to school for years to learn how to do it. But um, that does rely on conscious thought, right? And hopefully, if it goes well, you're able to kind of work uh, with different parts of the brain simultaneously so that your prefrontal cortex, which is the part doing all this thinking and practicing mindful self-awareness, can go ahead and help out that frightened amygdala, right? And and that there, there's communication happening across the hemispheres of the brain. Now, I say all of this as not a neuroscientist. I'm sure there's someone listening with more expertise who would make some corrections to what I'm saying, and maybe maybe even you will. But I want to kind of pose it this way, that we have right right and left brain. We also have kind of front and back of brain or, or outer and deeper recesses of brain. And when you talk about developmental trauma, um, yeah, there are definitely people with complex developmental trauma who could benefit from the, you know, the ice cream analogy CBT I was just describing. But I, I want to know more about what types of treatments are we missing? Are we failing to recognize are helpful for these people who have these deep developmental wounds of maybe 
abandonment or abuse very early on in life from a, a time before they even had language. Right. That's a very good way to demarcate it before you have language, which, which they say zero to three. So it might be before you have language and a little bit of self-control to utilize your language, being that most many kids talk at one uh, or one and a half. Um, I would say that when you don't have language and when you have trauma, especially at the hands of the people that are supposed to regulate you, because when you're a baby, you cannot self-regulate. It is beyond your capacity. And so you need someone to come along and go, shh, shh. or, oh, don't worry, that dog's not going to bite you. He's just barking really loud, you know. Here, we can pet him. Typical, normal, I see you're freaking out. I'm going to help you calm down. Oh, I see you're bored. I'm going to help you rev up. And that's what moms do. That's what parents do and good caregivers do. They keep the baby engaged and in a kind of window of tolerance. So they're neither too revved up and getting jangled from that, nor too dropped away and dissociating, but in that window where they can learn and function well. And um, so I would say the kinds of therapies that some of these kids need are ones that just simply get them into their perceptive body. Some of these kids are so afraid to think and so afraid to feel that they spend literally all their time tapping, tapping, tapping their knee or jangle, jangle, jangle or um, drinking, vaping, other things, substance things, um, their social media addiction, um, listen to music, listen to music, listen to music. It could be lots and lots of things. There's nothing wrong with many of those things, but their, their purpose is to blockade against feeling. And these kids often get triggered simply by feeling something because, uh-oh, uh-oh, that could open a drawer with all kinds of awful things in it, and I might not be able to cope, and I might cry here at school or whatever. I might yell and get kicked out of this house too. So it's terrifying to drop into your feelings, which makes applying CBT really difficult. <laughs> um, you're not even over the threshold of going, oh, that's a feeling. And just as a sidebar, a really common, this is a really common trait of an adult, child, adult children of alcoholics or adult children of other dysfunctional parenting, because you're just not supposed to feel. The, the directive of your family was just carry on, nothing to see here, you know, go do your homework. Don't you have something to do? And so um, it's really hard to unlearn that. And if you've been in PTSD, fight or flight or freeze since you were a little baby and you are reluctant to feel your feelings, um, it can be very difficult to emerge from that and reconnect. And so, for example, I mentioned somatic psychotherapy. Um, another is neuroaffective relational model, NARM, which is Dr. Lawrence Heller. And what Dr. Lawrence Heller might do would notice their cli the client 
getting into a distressful state and say, where are you feeling that in your body? You know, oh, my stomach is just in a knot and it's, it's I'm going to throw up and it's so terrible. And just like, well, let's watch where it goes. Is it moving? Does it have a temperature? You know, describe the feeling. And all this therapy is really trying to do is help someone have um, greater tolerance to explore their feelings and realize the feelings are the sensations in their body that they're um, carried away by or blocking and that they can kind of learn how to surf those feelings in a more skillful way. And once you've experienced a feeling all the way through to fruition and to having it fade away a couple of times, you realize, well, feelings go and come. They're fleeting. They don't kill me. I can sit here in child's pose and take deep breaths until this feeling of anxiety fades away. And so uh, some of the right brain therapies are just trying to do that. No story, no background, no um, list of skills. Um, So Um, In neurofeedback, what they're doing is measuring the reactivity of your right brain and your left brain um, while you, there's just a sensor and a sensor and a ground, while you watch a little kind of mandala, pretty um, graphic on the computer, and while you listen to some sort of world music. And The only feedback that happens is when your right brain is off-roading from your left brain, the system just very subtly skips or hitches or slows down the rhythm of the picture and the music. And so your right brain, which is a pattern recognition system, basically that's how you begin learning by recognizing what's familiar. Um, Your right brain very quickly is like, well, this is not at all good. My music is all messed up. Your left brain has no clue about it. It's not, it's very subtle. It's nothing that your left brain is going to pick up. Um, so when the music is skip free, that means the right brain is somehow not messing it up. And when the music is skipping, something is getting messed up and very rapidly your brain figures out, oh, that's me. Oh, that's me. And when I do this, Things are calm. My music is good. There's no hitches. And so it's just giving you the feedback that you might need to try to keep yourself in the window of tolerance and um, in a more smooth um, reactivity, you know, not over or under reactive. And that's all it trains for, the system that I got from my foster youth. And it was absolutely remarkable how much it opened her up to being able to feel and express her feelings and speak about her history. And she wrote two incredible poems and emailed them to me. And I was sobbing, you know, it was nothing I could imagine hearing, you know, in words. And they were so wise and beautiful. And so it really opened things up for her to be able to stay more regulated, which then opened the doorway into exploring feelings and using those skills she'd learned already um, in, in therapy. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, 
I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. And let's talk about that concept of staying regulated. So emotion regulation, I think you gave a beautiful example of that when you described the mother-infant bond and how it ideally goes, right? And mother could be caregiver, you know, ideally the child has multiple responsive caregivers, including a mother and a father. Um, But I'm going to use mother for primary caregiver, right? But that that there's a relationship where the baby expresses baby distress, and that could be anything, too hot, too cold, sleepy, hungry, poopy, wet, understimulated, overstimulated. Um, These are emotional and sensory experiences, internal and external. And, um, you know, as adults, we learn to manage these processes ourselves. We know that if we're hungry or thirsty, we can go get water or food. But um, those more, you know, the, the levels of stimulation, those are things that are more subtle and yet equally important. Um, and so as a baby, you're equally helpless when it comes to all of it, right? You're, you're no more capable of, um, managing your own toileting needs (laughs) as you are with being able to self-soothe for that fear of the barking dog right? And so when you describe emotion regulation, really emotion regulation dates all the way back to infancy and the mother-infant bond. Absolutely. Um, Um, Emotional self-regulation is the probably most important skill of mental health. And you learn it by three. And you learn it by those three years of somebody else externally co-regulating you, meaning, oh, I get it. Something's wrong. Let me help you. Oh, that didn't do it. Let me try this. Don't worry. I'm sticking with you till we figure this out. Oh, you're wet. Okay. Now I'll change your diaper. Are you more comfy now? Let's find you a toy. And you do that infinitely, you know, for thousands of times. And little by little, your baby is learning to discern hunger from fatigue, from boredom, 
and what you do for those states and how they're all temporary states that get remedied rather rapidly. And if that's your experience, and of course, no one's perfect, there's no such thing as a perfect mother, but you only need a good enough mother. And a good enough mother, it matters to them to try to get it right. They may make mistakes, they may blow blow their cool, but they'll come back around and say, that was unfortunate. I lost my temper. I'm really sorry. You didn't ask me anything that weird or anything. I was just in a bad mood and I took it out on you. And I'm, you know, can, can I answer you now? And that's what's known as rupture and repair. So there's a rupture, but you repair it. And um, the baby gets the message from being cared for and co-regulated. You're important you're safe. Somebody who's skillful at all this stuff has your back and you can relax and be curious and experiment. And you fall down, someone's picking you up, you know, um, you get too tired, someone's going to soothe you and help you have a nap. And just that process is the natural way of learning this. But as cor- of course, you can only have to imagine what it's like for a baby where nobody is regulating them and they're stuck in a crib to scream all night long because people are on heroin or, you know, I mean, they're terrible experiences of never being relieved will lead a child to do the very few things they can do, which is object scream, sob, cry, yell, or dissociate, um, which sort of means go into thumb-sucking and self, self-soothing self in the best way they can and just float away and not be paying too much attention to what's going on in their house or that they're really hungry or whatever it is that's upsetting them. And that could be repeated for three years. And then you're going to have a kid who has a really hard time managing their emotions because nobody has ever modeled it. And, you know, I think if we're going to get any meta lesson from the number of kids that are struggling right now to feel grounded, embodied, um, at ease in their bodies and self-accepting and safe, then we really need to look at the developmental years and how we're handling things with little kids. Because even in a loving, attentive home, there's all kinds of very non-primal, um, modern um, behavior that you would never, ever, ever see a hunter-gatherer do. So I think we should question all of those things because um, that's not what we co-evolved to get when we were little. And um, what we co-evolved to get is what you see when you look at any other primate. You know, you look at the gorilla mother, you look at the chimpanzee mother. They're all just doing that the same way we're supposed to do. Um, It's it's not fancy. And in fact, um, besides giving you self-regulation, the other big benefit is is you get secure attachment, which is a trusting ability to trust and feel attached to someone who has shown themselves to be a safe guardian of you. Um, And in fact, when they have worked with very um, at-risk mothers like um, 
let's say, teenage mothers, and it's their first pregnancy. In one program, um, one study that I read, they gave half the women in the program a soft carrier, like a baby Bjorn or a sling. I don't know what brand, but just a carrier and said, oh, it's really good for your baby to carry them in this carrier every day. And that's the only intervention, $25 in one conversation, maybe a couple of reminders. And the women who were given the soft carrier had double the rate of of secure attachment with their babies as the uh, mothers who were not giving that, that intervention. So it's very, very simple, natural things that really provide a difference um, and make a difference. Wow. Just a brief conversation and a $25 tool. Um, And for people who are just listening and not watching, you had made a gesture of embracing with your arms to show how in our primate ancestors, there's that physical touch bond and and that real closeness and dependency between the infant and the mother in the first few years of life. And you talk about how that's interrupted in our society. And I would add, not just in the more extreme cases that you talk about of, you know, drug addiction and things like that, but also with the, the busyness and chaos of modern life, I think um, really disrupts and gets in the way of having that secure attachment for the first few years. So what I'd like to point out about what I hear you saying is that when we talk about emotion regulation and the the roots of emotion regulation, we're talking about need responsiveness. Emotion regulation begins with need responsiveness, whether that's, you know, the, the infant's physical needs or the mental, psychological, and emotional needs, such as needs for stimulation, play, interaction, um, and novel experiences, uh, or the need for down-regulating, the need for, um, Uh, protection from overstimulation, the need for winding down and calming. Um, And I think it's through internalizing that ideally that we, uh, that those skills become naturally scaffolded, right? Just like there's a natural process where you hope that over time, if you're, if you're doing an adequate job at parenting, your kid eventually picks up how to make themselves a sandwich. And then, you know, a few years later, they they learn a soup recipe. And then by the time they leave your house, hopefully they have a few recipes under the, their belt and they won't set the house on fire when they try to cook. There are all these life skills that you hope your kids internalize through the natural scaffolding that comes through being a part of your, your household. And similarly, emotionally, um, we do the same. And and really, there's there's no clear cutoff point because how much of the time do we have an emotion only to discover that that emotion was coming also from a place of hunger or fatigue or, you know, that we have the word hangry for this reason? You know, I personally am, am a danger to myself after nine o'clock at night, and you know, because my, my prefrontal cortex goes offline, I get sleepy, and then my emotions can't regulate themselves either. I yeah, no, you're I don't not need to worry a... anyone. I'm not a danger to myself in any way you need to worry about. I'm, I'm But you're not going to but... have a difficult conversation at 9 p.m. You'll wait mm-hmm. until you're rested and had something to eat, which is intelligent. Exactly. Yeah. So there's, I, I think there's actually very little distinction and no, no clear cutoff point between how learning how to recognize our own physical sensations and respond to our physical needs is different from recognizing our emotions and what we need to do about our emotions. And yet so often when I hear people use the phrase emotion regulation, 
I get the sense that people think that means um, just being completely level all the time and not having so many needs. No, I, I would have to disagree with that. <laughs> I, I do as well. And I'm and I'm glad that we're addressing this concept from the ground up. Like, where does emotion regulation come from? What does it consist of? Because I really think it's about eventually developing the ability to become responsive to yourself, which you have That's to right. learn through how other people are modeling being responsive to you. Exactly. And to be respond to be aware of yourself. Because of course, going back to being the little baby. You just know, um, I feel horrible, <laughs> you know, ah, this, th- this whole day is ruined, you know, scream, scream. That's all you know is I feel bad. You don't know I'm wet. You don't know I'm hungry. You don't know no one's looking at me and I've smiled at you now four times and you haven't looked at me. Um, you're just a little baby experiencing something very unpleasant. And it is also in the interpretation and the rupture and the repair that you begin to self-identify the difference between hunger and fear or whatever. They're both in your belly, you know, Um, and there are very subtle signals. And I think a lot of adults today, a lot of people today walk around very shut down from their bodies. They are less aware of themselves physically and the subtle sensations like Um, I know after I went through therapy, I became more aware of my subtle feelings and like little things like, oh, I'm excited. I feel this, you know, fluttering, um, buzzy feeling in in my chest that, oh, it's, I must be really excited about meeting this person or whatever, you know, Um, stuff that was kind of beneath my threshold of awareness, I became aware too. And, um, you know, I have a kind of a hiking practice and I think hiking is insanely good for body awareness. You know, you have to be aware of your balance and your footing and the trail and um, your breathing and it's quiet and you can really feel your body and those kinds of things. In fact, that's something I worked a lot with my CASA on because I read Bessel van der Kolk and his work on healing from developmental trauma And he was talking a lot about gross motor synchrony being a really helpful thing for children who have not learned how to self-regulate. So dance or theater or ping pong or tennis where you're syncing up with somebody, but they're not getting too close to you and you can kind of predict it. They're not coming at you. They're, they're playing with you. They're cooperating with you. It's mutual. And there's a little bit of structure to it in the same way being in a play or being in a dance troupe or something. You're rehearsing it. You know when the line is, when you cross the stage, what's going to happen. And kids who need to learn self-regulation can be very, very um, benefited by those kinds of experiences. So that was something I did with my Casa youth. We played a lot of tennis. Um, And it was fun. You're laughing. You're running. It's cooperative. You're trying to keep the rally going or whatever. Um, And again, that's a way that an adult could be in a sink with somebody else getting a certain amount of need met in a cooperative way. So it's a reparative experience, even though you're no longer a baby with 
needing someone to change you. You know, you still need people to cooperate with you and recognize that you ran way back so they better come into the net or whatever, you know, responding to your movements. Um, so yeah, in my reading, I got a lot of nuggets from a lot of brilliant therapists who um, could convey the kinds of things that those kids are lacking and how you can remediate them. I love hearing that about what you describe as gross motor synchrony or movements that involve um, mirroring and coordination with other people. I'm thinking about the role of rhythm and like a whole body understanding of rhythm and how that dates back again to that mother-infant bond because there's the rocking and the cooing and the mirroring and the and the gestures. And I also and thought patterns, patterns <laughs> seeking from rhythm. So with if you want to make a baby laugh, I mean, I have two little twin grandbabies. They're eight months old. So I've been in a baby lab for this past year or since they were born. Um, and if you do, if you're pouring water and you go blip, 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 blip. Blue, like that. They laugh. They just, you did something different. They were expecting the same thing. It's amazing that even a little baby knows, oh, what happened? And it's the right brain recognizing pattern, trying to make a prediction and finding it funny that the prediction didn't happen. Um, so a lot of those things are just built into us. Mm -hmm. and the ways our brains learn. And so much of basic sanity is the sense that there is a predictable pattern to how most things around you work most of the time. Um, Without that, then you have chaos and and disorder, and all you can do is reinvent the wheel in in each new situation, and things things don't make sense. You know, for some reason, and, and I, I've learned to kind of trust whatever images pop into my mind, whether I'm in therapy or podcasting and conversation, I'll just get these images in my mind and, I, and I'll speak to them and there's something there. You know, I was thinking about um, something I've recently learned that um, I love, which is boogie boarding. And unfortunately, I didn't learn this until after the years of my life that I actually lived near the ocean in warm places. <laughs> and, you know, that's, thinking back developmentally, that was a developmental need that I had was for someone to recognize when I was little that I actually would have loved boogie boarding more often. But, you know, that lack of mirroring from the outside environment meant I didn't realize that this is something that I loved. It takes self-awareness. It takes, you know, someone observing us and noticing us and reflecting us back to ourselves for us to see ourselves and develop that self-awareness. In my case, this is an example of how it would have been really helpful for an adult to say, wow, Stephanie, you really seem to like boogie boarding that one time you did it. Let's get you doing that again, right? But so I've discovered this passion for it. And in the ocean, you get this rhythm, right? And it's it's like the rhythm of being in the womb and hearing your mother's heartbeat. And there are these predictable patterns and and your brain learns to sync up. You, you mm-hmm. have this sensory motor experience of kind of feeling the depth and texture of the waves coming toward you and noticing the the rhythmic patterns of the water. And I, I started to get very good very quickly for somebody who's just experimented with this at kind of predicting which combinations of waves and, and what timing would be a good place to get in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's that sense when you're, when you're riding the wave, everything makes sense in the universe. 
You know, it's like you Flow. can trust your body. You can trust your whole body to work together with something that's bigger than you outside of you. And there's a secure attachment in that too, because nature is powerful and the ocean is scary. The ocean's like the mother. It can, it can devour you whole, you know, the ocean can take you out, but there's a secure attachment in the sense that this thing I'm, that's think this thing that's so much bigger than me that can contain me is working with me. It's not mm-hmm. a threat to me and I can move with its rhythms, you know, and it's I, self-trust as well, because mm, you're trusting yourself to right. be paying attention, aware, intuitive. Um, so that's a part of it as well. Yeah. And when I imagine the kind of rehabilitative programs that I would design for, you know, my population that I'm most interested in, detransitioners or survivors of gender malpractice, people who are lost in transition, I don't think we have necessarily the right um collective vocabulary for these terms, but basically people who have been harmed by gender medicine in any way. When I think about the treatments that I would love to be able to provide them, I mean, many of them fall so so far outside of anything you would call psychotherapy. I'd love to take them boogie boarding, for instance. And so it's, it's validating to hear you say uh, just how important these motor synchrony activities are, embodiment practices, how helpful it would be to dance in rhythm with other people or I would add, you know, to play music in rhythm with other people, these physical activities, Mm -hmm. yeah, that replicate and kind of give you that missing experience. And I think that's kind of leads to my next question, which is given that we can't go back in time and recreate a different childhood um, for people who have complex and severe um, developmental trauma, which can include various forms of abuse and neglect. Um, how can they learn to kind of reparent themselves to, even though they can't go back in time, to go back to find some of those missing needs and give themselves what they can now, especially considering that many of them are disadvantaged in adulthood? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I mentioned adult children of alcoholics before. I'm not sure if we were on camera or if it was before our conversation started, but it's a free program and it is a very good um, kind of opening into considering with compassion your origins. Unlike other 12-step programs, which are more... um, they're harsher about take your fearless moral inventory, you know, you've abused people due to your addiction and you need to make amends. This program is much more um, understanding how growing up in a dysfunctional slash alcoholic, but any kind of dysfunction would work, how a dysfunctional environment has um, led you to the place where you don't um where your internal soundtrack is screaming at you just as hard as your abusive parents once did, Um, where you're just as anxious and upset as you were when you were six years old hearing plates breaking. Um, And a lot of kids who grow up in that environment, this is something I wanted to get to, so I'm glad it's coming up, um, will have self-hatred as the upshot because they're too little to hate the person hurting them, which could be a bully, by the way. It doesn't have to be somebody at home. They're they're too um, 
But if it's a parent, they're, they're, they need that parent to survive. They need that parent to feed them, protect them, et cetera. So they have to blame somebody else. And if it's just you and your parent, guess who gets blamed? And so you have, and this was something that I've been consistently surprised by how absolutely mean the inner voice of a truly self-hating person can be. They're awful to themselves in their head. Uh, you stupid idiot, you always screw it up. And she's not going to be your friend. What were you thinking? They're not going to hire you. you all, you're a loser. You always, you know, who would like you? And this is how somebody treats themselves in their own mind. Well, going into adult children um, of alcoholics or a similar kind of program, you will begin taking an inventory of some of the things that happened to you and looking at them with the help of the program through adult eyes. I think that's the heart of a therapeutic healing as well. If you find a good therapist, someone who can really witness the extent of how painful things were for you and love you through that when you're hating yourself for having been the horrible kid that brought all that onto yourself you see a therapist or a friend or other people in the 12-step program who are able to say, "There's, you're a nice person, you know, we like you. Um, and we don't think there's anything bad about you. That, that was a terrible thing that happened to you. You're not a terrible kid. Um, and that is a repair, that those reparative um, experiences, it's not going to be one, it's not going to be 10, but dozens and hundreds and thousands of reparative experiences every time you trust someone and wind up feeling like it went okay you know you're learning better how to trust um so i think neurofeedback could be great for a lot of people and that is rather rapid it's a bit expensive it's about a hundred dollars per session i think but you might only need 20 or 30 sessions for the course of treatment, and you might be able to get a payment plan. Um, I think physical activity like a hiking practice, um, a yoga practice, Pilates, anything where you're really in a like meditative internal state and being physically active at the same time. Um, but um, and friends, you know, most of us have friends that we could talk to. And I mean, I had one friend who was terribly abused as a, as a young kid and we became friends in high school and she talked to me. She told me what was going on and I could barely believe it. It was shocking to me and I could really barely believe it. And then once I witnessed her mother take off on her when she didn't know that I could see and it was like, oh my God, she's absolutely telling the truth. And, um, and she tells me just my believing her and we're still friends to this day. This is when we were 15, um, that just my believing her and not thinking she was bad or someone to not be friends with anymore because she had this shameful, shameful secret of not being loved by her own parents. Maybe we could put in the show notes the Philip Larkin poem, uh, This Be the Verse, <laughs> which is a really good poem because it basically talks about how that abusive parent was themselves an abused 
child once upon a time and, you know, having compassion for what you went through starts to grow into having compassion for what your mom or your dad might have gone through. And once you can let yourself off your own hook for being the horrible kid who deserved it, you can begin letting other people off the hook too, because you don't need to hang on to that quite as much anymore. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. Okay, so there's a couple places I'd like to go. One is that you've started to talk about breaking the cycle. And I think that's important because, you know, on the one hand, you've talked about shame. You've touched on it. Um, and the the shameful beliefs about oneself that people tend to internalize when they haven't felt loved. Um, but there's also reasons that we feel ashamed of ourselves when we engage in embarrassing behavior. And, you know, I'm imagining that the type of youth that you're talking about, you know, the type of youth I've, I've also worked with in different contexts, um, tend to behaviorally act out, right? When when we can't self-soothe, when when our basic needs have gone unmet, then we turn toward addiction, self-harm, violence. You know, we become emotionally dysregulated. We don't have the language or the security to ask others for what we need. Um, and so I see a lot of people get stuck in these cycles of shame. And it can be hard to, as you're saying, let yourself off the hook when you know that you've acted in an embarrassing way and you truly have maybe alienated or lost people. You can't always count on that one loyal friend who understands why you do the things that you do. And so how do we help people from your perspective who carry shame, not only because of the abuse and neglect that they've faced, but also because of the things that they've done when they were emotionally or behaviorally out of control. Um, how, how do people find self-forgiveness 
And how do we break the cycle so that, like you're saying, that abused child who becomes an abusive parent, you know, then passes that on? Like, how do we break the cycle for the next generation? Well, that's a big question. And um, that's exactly why, by the way, why I decided to become a CASA, because I think one of the ways we can break the cycle is to stop being so... um, you know, uh, only, only nurturing our own, um, genetic offspring. It's kind of silly. If you have the heart for children, you're interested in helping them. There are a lot of places you can plug in. So I think first we just need to real, well, number one, we need to realize that early childhood and the developmental years can set the tone for the whole lifetime mental health of the person. And if you're struggling with mental health, it's very likely that you had not gotten your needs met as a little child. And you've probably spent a lifetime in just, you know, shut up and get on with it, or no one cares what you want to whine about or whatever with that inner voice. And so the first thing you have to do is really try to try to believe that if somebody had been saying they're there and giving you what you needed and mirroring you and helping you, you would have a a whole set of skills that you didn't get because no one showed them to you. And the way you get them is through through implicit learning, which is observation, modeling, drawing inferences. Nobody says, oh, here's how you calm down. They pick you up and they go, and they do a deep breath and they pat your back in a slower way. And your upset starts moving in that direction because they've set the beat, set the tone and helped you. So it's more of a body to body um, um, mirroring and aping that goes on that teaches a little nonverbal child how to calm down. It's very much like just in the sway of being held and patted. And the motherese is another thing, um, which is nonverbal. It's all tone. But if you're going, oh, no, 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 you know, that's a very different tone. Like, oh, poor little thing, you know, versus watch out, you know, jump back. Is a different tone. It's fast and staccato and it's telling someone what, you know, there's a danger. So mothers in any language are going to use the same tonal messages to their babies to communicate the same things. And you could hear a mother speaking Japanese to her baby, and you know if she's saying, don't touch that cat, or she's saying, you know, oh, you're the prettiest baby I ever saw. And it's just obvious from the, from the music, getting back to rhythm and music, the, the primal baby brain can receive pattern. You've had nothing but heartbeat for your whole first nine months. Swoosh, 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 and the beat of a heart. You've got rhythm already. Uh, When you're born, you've heard your mother's voice. Um, I actually recall from Twitter a heartbreaking picture of a baby of a surrogate hearing their birth mother's, their surrogate's voice for the first time as a six or eight month old child when she visited and the face just bursts open with, 
you're the one. Oh, I've been waiting for that voice, which is why adoption can be traumatic on a little baby, even if they go to the best home in the world and the most sensitive, loving parents. They've had a shock trauma. They've had a loss. They've had the loss of something that they were predicting to hear more of. It suddenly went away one day and everything was different. So, um, you know, people think, well, God, you know, this baby was adopted at birth and went straight into these wonderful PhDs who are the nicest people. And you just don't register that a real trauma has happened to that baby, period. Um, we have to be more compassionate to how sensitive and unguarded little babies are. They don't have any defenses. They don't have any skills. They don't have any abilities. And when bad things happen to them, um, it's, it's the worst tragedy you can have because it's going to affect them deeply. And it, people that you work with know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and, you know, the read Read a few books about attachment. Um, I would recommend John Bowlby as an incredible writer, um, psychotherapist, and deeply humane man um, on attachment. And some of the great attachment writers, Bowlby, I forget if it was Bowlby or Masterson, but one of them was brought up by you know, a mean governess. You know, um, some of they, some of them did not get everything that we hope a child to get. So it doesn't mean that it's a life sentence or that you're doomed or that you're going to lack insight forever. You can work through this stuff and you can be more aware of it than all kinds of people and have something to offer um, your nieces and nephews and children and the kids on your block and whatever. If you learn that and you learn how important it is to co-regulate little children. Um, and, you know, I think um, I think volunteering in in a, any kind of cause that matters to you can be a healing experience for somebody who's stuck in self hate. Um, fostering an animal, walking dogs for the shelter, or something like that. Um, care, caring for horses that can be really, really soothing and healing. There's a lot of equine therapy for that reason. So just finding a situation that you can plug into and that at the very least at the end of the day, you can say, I showed up and I walked those horses and they wouldn't have been fed and watered if I hadn't been there. And, you know, that's just a little bit of something that you can do um, for somebody else, which I think it's pretty hard to feel like a, you know, worthless POS when you're doing good things for others. Um, that's a pretty tricky way to change your self-view. Um, you know, trying to think of things that are free. I would say draw near to the people that show you they can be trusted. Um, be a little selective to know who those people are. Give small tests before you give big tests to, you know, um, build up to uh, an ability to really trust somebody. But um my dad actually gave me some very good advice when I was a young kid, and I think I was probably, I don't know, 12 or 14 and feeling really out of it and, you know, unpopular or something like that. And he said, you know what, Laura, if you really like somebody, it's very hard for them not to like you. <laughs> and I thought, uh, he's wrong. But then 
as I went through my life, I realized it's really right. The people that really like me, I have a hard time not liking back, you know, and really liking isn't smothering or or sucking up to. It's just somebody that you think, oh, you're at this party. Oh, sit down by me. I like you. I don't know you that well, but every time I see you, I kind of have a nice time talking to you and that feeling. Um, lean into that feeling, you know. Um you you didn't learn the right lessons about what relationships can offer you. If you grew up in that way, you learned lessons about what the dangers of relationships. But what relationships can offer you is um, is really beautiful and really worth taking um, reasonable risks to to deepen your relationships and try to get there. Um, and again, um, it's a gradual process, but I just think holding a little space that says, okay, maybe there's a way I could feel about myself that isn't so mean and negative. Maybe some of this is a hangover of the very people that were mean to me. And I'm doing it to myself because I wonder what the hell would happen if nobody was yelling at me. Um, just open up your mind to think, there could be another way of me thinking about myself. And instead of saying, oh, I'm such an idiot and I really blow it. I mean, for example, I have a good self-talk. I never really realized I have good self-talk until knowing people who have bad self-talk. But like, I'll start to drive away and I'll realize I forgot the very thing I was going to the post office to mail. And I'll go, oh my God, that was stupid. And I turn back. But I'm not like, oh, my God, that was stupid, you know? I'll just, it just sort of, it's fine. It doesn't really bother me. I don't feel indicted. I don't dwell on it. Um, sometimes I'll even say that was, oh, that was dumb. Like, out loud. Because I'm 61 and you start doing that. <laughs> but it's just, um, it's, it's never a lecture, I don't do that to myself. I never have done that to myself. And I had a really attentive bio, um, biophysically close um, anthropologist mom. And that probably is a big reason why um, I have positive self-talk. She just was that kind of mother. Um, and it's kind of interesting because she wasn't always a great mother, but she was a really good mother to little kids. And I see her with little kids, and I see she has it. So I, I believe that that's always um, kind of your set point until you change it. So I want to change subject a little bit. Um, you have had some remarkable insights that you shared on Twitter before you got banned about the connections between everything you've learned about uh, psychological development in early childhood and what's happening with these vulnerable youth who are getting involved in gender ideology. So I want to invite you to share some of that those insights. Is there any particular place that you would want to begin with yeah, that? Um, I guess I'd start by saying when I first became aware of what was going on with gender, you know, it was uh, with adults that wanted to um, probably... 2012 or 2010 or something like that, you started hearing more about transgender identified adults. And I didn't find it logical, but I 
I did, it didn't really attract my attention in a big way. But when I heard those things applied to children, and especially some of the, oh, if you don't feel comfortable in your body, you never could relate to having the sex that you have. You've always been anxious about your breasts or whatever. You know, some of the signals you are trans stuff that are in a 10 million TikToks. Um, when I started hearing those, given the background that I have in developmental trauma and having read about it so much and having worked with a population for whom that is really relevant, um, I couldn't help but notice this is the list of symptoms of developmental trauma getting recast. Um, so, for example, in developmental trauma, you hate yourself very often. I mean, 95% of people who've been through developmental trauma experience self-hatred. It can almost be homicidal self-hatred. It is so mean. And how easy is it to morph, I hate myself, to I hate my women's body. I hate my female sex. That's why I hate myself. Um, another developmental trauma signal is dissociation. A lot of kids that have experienced developmental trauma will grow up and be um, in adulthood. They will dissociate. I saw my foster youth that I work with dissociate right in front of me. And it was literally like a fugue state, like a, a, a waking dream, um, like sleepwalking. And for like what had happened was there was a little minor altercation with her, with a foster mother. And, um, and this youth was scared, scared of being in trouble and didn't agree with the decision of the foster mother and scared to follow up with a more firm disagreement. And it had to do with what was, um, what they'd put on to wear to an event we were going to. And literally dissociated for about 40 minutes. I could barely get a word out. And I kept saying, we don't have to be here. We can leave. You seem very upset. I'm not sure what's upsetting you, but you don't seem to be your normal self. And finally, um, finally, I was told, well, I didn't want to wear this skirt that I've got on. I wanted to wear. I said, well, what did you want to wear? And heard, well, I wanted to wear shorts, but they're under the skirt. And I was like, take the skirt off. I don't care. Wear the shorts, you know, be how you want to be. And, and it calmed down. But it was about 40 minutes of serious dissociation that I had never witnessed that before. Um, just an inability to emerge back to the surface and speak. Um, uh, anyway, if you're dissociated, of course, you don't relate to inhabiting your body. You don't feel um, you don't learn a lot of things. You're not going to feel comfortable necessarily socially, maybe because you dissociated when um, other kids were learning the social rules or the social expectations. So you didn't learn them because you were too busy getting out of your body every time it felt bad. Um, that is going to have a lot of overlap with a kid that might think to themselves, well, why am I so ill at ease in my body? Oh, it's because I'm trans. Well, no, it might be dissociation. I hate my breasts might be 
um, Uncle Steve molested me and I've never told anybody about it. And it started when I started developing and I've got to get rid of these breasts to make myself safe, you know. Um, it could be so many things. Um, but if you look at the kinds of symptoms of developmental trauma, which are derealization, depersonalization, dissociation, um, lack of emotional self-regulation, um, impulsivity. Impulsivity is a huge one. And what are they saying to these kids? Do not pass go quickly. Let's get you immediately affirmed and onto a medical path. Um, so an Im an impulsivity it derives from never having been able to slow down with an adult weigh a decision, pro and con, make a mistake. You know, these kids aren't allowed to make any mistakes, so they can't make a decision because a decision might imply you made the wrong decision and it's your fault when it's a mistake. Just leap to something quick and, and try not to think about it. So um, I noticed a lot of these um, these signals of, of developmental trauma were present in this group. Um, I also can observe in our culture, um, and this may offend people, so I'm going to say that I think it's a cultural phenomenon, and I'm not trying to personalize it onto individual parents, but our whole culture now decided that you can drop off your baby at group care when they're, you know, three or four weeks old, I think. When I had children, that had just begun. That began in 1987. Before that, the entire dialogue in our culture about whether or not daycare would be okay or not okay for children was around three and four-year-olds going to preschool before going to kindergarten. And it just kind of morphed its way down the ages with no discussion. And um, and so if we're talking about emotional regulation, we're talking about mirroring, mirroring being, you know, a baby that goes goo, 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 and you go, oh, goo, goo, goo to you too. You know, you're talking back to them and they feel noticed and you heard them and you're meeting their affect and you're just basically being a mirror. Well, that is, um, that is something that goes on all day long or not. And if you have an amazing caregiver, if you have a grandma, an aunt, a nanny in home, you're more likely to have an amazing caregiver. But you could have an amazing caregiver in a group situation. It's still going to be divided four or five ways instead of being a, well, my daughter has two babies, so she has to divide in half. She seems to be able to regulate two babies. But um, it's a little harder. And then, of course, what if you have... The, what if you're in the group of five babies and one of them is colicky and you're just a pretty contented little coper? Well, how much mirroring are you getting? I would worry not enough. So I think we have to look at things like that in our culture. Cry it out. What does cry it out say? You feel hot, horrible in your body. No one's coming. Too bad. Uh, you're overwhelmed and out of control. Suck it up, you know, see you in the light. I'm not sure that a primal cave mother would do that. That would bring a predator to your cave. So 
These are things that good parents do, loving parents do, people are taught it, it is in books. I simply say, let's question it if it's not the kind of thing you'd see a hunter-gatherer do. There's actually a very good um, uh, woman on Twitter. Her name is Darsha Navarez, and she's at Moral Landscapes um, is her handle. And she's a um, professor at, um, oh, I'm just, it's escaping me right now, the, the really good Catholic a college in Indiana or Illinois, um, their football school. Anyway, <laughs> um, she's a professor and she's written a, a book called uh, Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, which is fascinating. And she talks a lot about the hunter-gatherer tribes as kind of the sweet spot of human development. And in that situation, you'd also have not just your mother, your one mother, you'd have aloe parents. You'd have elder cousins or siblings. You'd have neighbor, female neighbor, kids, 10-year-old kids. And you'd be a baby. You'd be passed around to the group quite a lot. So all the mirroring a baby needs, all the attention they need, it may be unrealistic to expect all of that from one mother. But now that's the situation for men, you know, many babies and mothers and or they're not able to even be there in a, in a more full-time way. But in the past, you got passed around. And in the past, um, you had intimate connections with a lot of elders in your group. You didn't just have one mom providing it all. Um, I think we need to do more of that. I'd like to see more, um, more volunteerism with people like me who've had children who are experienced who know what we're doing who like children who know how to play with babies and have fun with it and enjoy that and why isn't it possible to have a core of such volunteers and if you're a vulnerable new mother and don't have money and need help um someone like that can come over twice a week and help you out model skills um there's a, a program called the Nurse Family Partnership, which does a very similar thing, only they pay a nurse to come once a week um, from when the mother's, I think, five months pregnant through the baby's second birthday. And that, that program has incredibly good results of teaching young women who did not themselves have good mothering in most cases. Um, some of the skills of mothering simply by being a maternal person who shows up and says, how did things go this week? What's going on in your job? How are you feeling? Oh, let's measure you and, you know, see how big you are. Um, what are you eating? Uh, and just the genuine concern and care that is modeled over these months and also little factoids that can help that mother parent more effectively, like, oh, it's kind of normal for them to do that. And here's something you might do that might um, help him calm down. And don't worry about that. That's a normal thing. Um, so my biggest worry is that we've kind of broken an intergenerationally transmitted chain of know-how. And I feel that strongly when I hear bona fide adults not questioning all the 
affirmation um, care for dysphoric kids. I, I find it so shocking. I feel like, but isn't it self-evident that you don't give a harmful and permanent medicine for a problem that could be outgrown? Isn't that just what any adult, any CASA, any aunt who loved you, any good friend um, would do, would say? And it shocks me that people are um, unable to process this in, in what I feel like is a mature adult way. And instead, they're like, their um, orientation is immediate relief of presenting problem. Not, oh, let's dive underneath the surface and investigate the presenting problem. Not, oh, it's not that big of a problem, so let's just let it, let it ride for a minute and look into it. It's like if we don't tell this kid that they're a boy, they're going to kill themselves. And that, to me, that's just the nth degree of placation-based parenting that says if you give a big enough fit, we'll give you the cookie after all. If you're screaming at the restaurant, we'll give you an iPhone. And there's no skill basis and normal um, fathoming of sometimes the right thing that is the best for the child displeases them utterly in that moment. They think you're a jerk. They're mad at you. They think you're not fair. They swear they'll ev never, ever do the same to their child. But perhaps you're still right. Perhaps it's still the best move. You know, like we're, you can't smack someone with a toy. I'm taking you home. We're getting up and we're leaving. You know, um, that's a consequence. Anyway, it shocks me to see what people don't know that I would have thought anybody 35 or 40 or older would know by now. Um, and I feel like maybe that is a, a diminishment in maternal care. I mean, my mother grew up with grandmothers and a great-grandmother. I grew up with two grandmothers and a mother. Um, a lot of people grow up with no mother and certainly no grandmothers. And I think, how is that person supposed to internalize the whole their, their vernacular of mothering if they've not witnessed it, they haven't experienced it? Then um, you can go get mentors if that's something, you know, for people that are listening, if that's something that you feel you didn't get good mothering, well, you can go out there and find a good mother and watch what she does because it's very much something you can pick up. Um, I have a friend who grew up in a crazy way and she just said, oh, there was this woman at school and I just copied everything she did because her kids were happy and she seemed to know what she was doing and I just slid behind her. Um, that's not a bad idea, you know, if, you're, if you see someone who's gifted in an area that you're not gifted in, you can learn a lot. Um, I don't know if I covered what your question was. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop 
where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, I mean, there's no possible way to cover all of it, but um, I was just sort of chuckling to myself at one point because, again, this image, this memory came to mind, so I'll just share it. Um, my my stepson wanted his dad to cut his eyelashes off one day <laughs> because it turned out the reason oh, there's was, a reason. Yeah. <laughs> Glad we can have a laugh. His eye was irritated because he'd gotten an eyelash in his eye earlier, oh. and he hasn't yet learned the life lesson from experience that once you get an eyelash in your eye. Once you get it out, you're fine, but it's just going to feel irritated for a while. So he was dealing with that, you know, post-eyelash irritation, and he thought the solution was to cut off his eyelashes. And of course, we had a good laugh and explained, no, we're not cutting off your eyelashes, child. Right. That's a good way to get another one in there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it's, I mean, it's a perfect example of a child's logic. My eyelashes are bothering me. Just remove them. Right. And it's a perfect example of one of the many times that you say no and and the logic exactly. is you'll thank me later. You know, the, the child doesn't always have to understand why the answer is no. And also when you were speaking earlier about um limits, and you just kind of touched on this, it was several minutes ago now, but I but I made a note to bring up the subject of healthy limits versus abusive limits because I think kids who've heard a lot of abusive and neglectful no's no, quit your whining. No, you can't have that. No, no, no. Without really taking into account what is going on. What does the kid need? Um, I think maybe they don't learn to differentiate as, as kids who are raised in a healthier environment ultimately do. Hopefully by the time they grow up, they recognize, yeah, my mom told me no about the candy and the video games and the this and then that. And I was mad at the time, but I see why she did it now. Um, So I wonder if, you know, again, with these trans-identifying kids who are impulsively pushing for something that they think will solve their problems, and it's, you know, an equivalent of cutting off their eyelashes, but worse, um, if if part of the reaction there is that many of them haven't had the experience of proper parenting, which includes, no, you can't have dessert tonight, you already had dessert last night, and we only give dessert three nights a week, or no, you can't stay up late playing video games, you have school in the morning— no, you can't hit your brother. That's not an appropriate way to tell him you want your ball back. All of these appropriate no's get mixed in with the abusive no's because they haven't had the healthy no's. And then it's just like, well, why deprive a child of anything they want? You know, there's kind of this backlash in the opposite direction where people are forgetting how to be adults. That's right. And and two, when you're, when you're you know, differentiating the, the sort of the beneficial no... Um, that's metacognition. Let's remember that a good no and a bad yes are more complicated than a good yes and a bad no. And uh, I do think relational intimacy is key at imparting metacognition Mm. because when you're really at one with somebody, when you're a baby with their mother and you feel like we're just this puddle of love and then your mother has a plan that you don't want to do, suddenly rupture, you know, and you've got to make the repair and you've got to deal with the disappointing mother 
who you actually really love, but right now you're really mad at. And that is metacognition in a nutshell. Um, and, and it's hard and it takes time to get there. But I think when you have parents who don't know how to say no, sometimes they only have so much time with their child at the end of a long day and everybody's hungry and, um, and over it. And they don't want to say no. And P.S., they don't want to wreck the time that they have, you know, after work, with dinner, et cetera, et cetera, by being really strict and difficult. And I think sometimes, from my own observation, some of the missing skills of these teens' parents were probably skills that I honed with a screaming two-and-a-half-year-old insisting they didn't need to go to bed as tears flowed down their chin and dropped off, you know? And you sometimes you just have to say, well, I'm calling it here, and you're tired, and I'm putting you in bed, and that's that. And, you know, I'll come back in two minutes, if you, but you're going to fall asleep if you lie down. I, I know it, you know? Um. I think if you haven't been in the trenches and realized how important the intelligent no's are by bitter experience, and your child hasn't gone through that either, hearing those no's from you, having the wisdom of them borne out, at least in some proportion of the cases, um, maybe neither person in that dyad has what they need to weather what's going on. Um, maybe you have both a kid who only, who gobbles down placation because that's what they can get, and a parent who offers it because that's what they can give, and nobody's doing the metacognition and nobody's giving the good no. And I think this plays into it. This is what, this is my theory. Um, this is something that I'm working on writing about, um, that I think that we've just gone through a cultural change. And some of the stuff that was common knowledge to our grandmothers is no longer common knowledge. Um, if my grandmother would have seen Jazz Jennings on TV, my grandmother who was born in 1908, she would have said, oh, honey, well, he's gay. Just leave him alone. Let him, let him play with Barbies. Oh, no, you don't want to do that. He hasn't even formed yet. That's what my grandmother would have said. That's what everybody's grandmother would have said. And it's really shocking to me. Um, it's like I, I grew up and was a teenager and gender was never a word uttered by any of my peers. I or me. I grew, I raised three kids through teen, teenage years and gender was never uttered as a word by them or any of their peers. So it's just really hard for me to believe it's a be-all, end-all linchpin of existence now. Um, and the last part is, um, I don't think identities make people want to kill themselves. I think terrible unhappiness and unresolved emotional pain and not being able to relate to people and not trusting people and being horrible to yourself in your internal voice, those make people want to kill themselves. Um, suffering makes people want to kill themselves. And it shocks me that um, physicians and therapists today are not willing to say, no, if someone has 
a desire to end themselves, they are suffering and the suffering is a mental health issue and that needs to be addressed. We cannot make it easy for that kid to say, I'm suffering because all I need is this one cookie of hormones and then I won't be suffering anymore. And people are saying, oh, well, good idea. (laughs) And it's just, um, it's dereliction. It's incredible dereliction of, of treating a person like a whole person. And forcing children to self-diagnose and then just running with the ball without a question. Um, Something has happened to adults. And the more I think about it, the more I think part of it is these are adults who are not able to fathom their children are unhappy because of the normal kinds of things that novels for hundreds of years have talked about that make people unhappy. Um, We all know unhappy people who suffered through the, you know, hit parade of terrible things. Um, You don't get born with a part of your inner mind and your identity that is going to be at odds with yourself to the point of suicide. That is, in my view, a non-existent thing. And that is the frame that gender is taking in, in the culture that you could possibly, I mean, now that we're talking about little babies and how they learn, how could you possibly have a fully sprung idea of what hairstyles and colors and whatever that you really express your real self when you are just building a self? And indeed, when you remember um, the Romanian orphans, if you don't have relational um, intimacy and somebody really caring about your feelings and that you exist and what's going on in there, you don't have a self. You're essentially vegetative, like those terrible, I mean, I don't know if you've seen those films, you're younger than I am, but when they first got into after um, Kaukescu, in Romania and went into these orphanages and these kids just didn't even talk. They didn't even move. They were like babies in cribs when they were three years old. Um, That's what happens if you don't, at the nth degree of not having a relational childhood. So it's crazy to think any, any innate quality could tick away inside all kids and not be present in the Romanian orphans. Do you know what I mean? I don't believe it. I just am, I'm just skeptical. And that isn't to say that if you are so gender nonconforming that in adulthood with a, with informed consent and really knowing the risks you're taking with your body, your fertility, your ability to orgasm and those things, if an adult decides that they are really going to find it easier to just blend um, presenting in the opposite sex. I don't have a problem with that. Like there, it doesn't concern me. Um, I'm not worried about it. I have thoughts about what's fair to women and, you know, in sports and other things, but it doesn't bother me if somebody, if Eddie Izzard wants to wear a dress, doesn't bother me at all. Um, So, but I'm very bothered by people who should be safeguarding children, having wisdom, 
being the adult in the room, enabling kids to do foolhardy things in this fantasy of, of um, you know, a, a grandiose fantasy of being a hero, uh, a hero doctor, a hero uh, endocrinologist, or a hero parent. Oh, I'm a hero parent. It, my child isn't sad and depressed and suicidal. No, my child has a special gender identity that the hate of others due to this gender identity is the issue. So I think it's, a, it's serving a denial purpose. You said that you're working on some writing. Do you have a blog? Or are you working on a book? I'm working on a book about these topics. Um, That's exciting. About, yeah, it is exciting. And, what can you tell um, us at this time about it? Well, I'm basically, I'm wanting to write a book that's sort of um, geared toward new parents and basically going over some of these things that may not be getting passed down in the normal ways and being a little more overt to talk about the ways in which we treat babies having a great deal to do with their future mental health and what the best practices are for um, building sturdy minds in our children. That's great. Well, I'm really looking forward to updates about your book. Thank um, you. Where can people find you for now? Well, um, I could put my email on your show notes if people are interested in contacting me. We can do that. Um, hopefully, I'll be back on Twitter. Um, I'm appealing and appealing. I know I'm not hateful and never have been. And um, I guess you could you could uh, tweet your objection to my remaining in jail if you want to for listeners. Um, hopefully, I will get a human on this. That sounds great. Well, it's been great having you. Thank you so much, Laura. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Stephanie. Nice talking to you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at SomeTherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.